If your middle name is Restless and you identify with words like innovator, dreamer, changemaker, creative, independent, or you are married to an entrepreneur or heaven help you, you're both entrepreneurs, this podcast is for you. The entrepreneurial journey can be a little wild at times, like uncharted territory. Join me as I talk with others who are at various stages of the entrepreneur process. We'll explore the wisdom and insights they have gained while navigating the ups and downs of the entrepreneur journey. You'll discover that there are many couples who have found ways to thrive in both their marriage and business. considering looking for the nicest box that we could find to move into <laughs> under the nicest bridge that we could find. My guests on today's episode are Bob and Rose Noor. They are an example of what Chip Conley refers to as modern day elders. But don't confuse elder with old. Very much still young at heart, they are investing in the next generation of entrepreneurs and young adults. Bob has over 30 years of diversified experience as a corporate executive, entrepreneur, and early stage investor. He has founded more than 10 new business ventures in both corporate and independent settings. Tapestry Medical Inc., the topic of this conversation, was one of the nation's fastest growing private companies by 2008. Currently, Bob is affiliated with three of the nation's top schools for entrepreneurial education, including Baylor University, where he serves as entrepreneur in residence and a board member of the Baylor Angel Network, University of Pennsylvania, where he teaches a graduate level course in entrepreneurship, and Drexel University, where he has recently joined the advisory board at the Close School for Entrepreneurship. In this episode, the Norse share their experience of launching and scaling Tapestry Medical, Inc. They faced what seemed to be insurmountable challenges as the company grew, partially fueled by the financial crisis of 2008. Bob shares a transformational shift regarding his faith that he experienced when they were at the brink of disaster. We talk about their commitment as a team throughout this journey. I think they are a great example of the best of marriage. Fasten your seatbelts. You're in for a wild ride in this episode. I'm really happy to be with Bob and Rose Noor today. Thank you guys so much for agreeing to sit down and have this conversation. I know we've had it many times. And as I thought about guests to invite on this podcast, um, I really wanted to just share your story with other couples who are a little farther behind than where you guys are. So because they don't know you, let's just start a little bit with um, where you are currently. Like how long have you guys been married? We've been married 36 years. Awesome. Awesome. And children? We have two children, a son and a daughter, a 31-year-old and a 29-year-old. Okay. And one is married and you have a big event coming up soon. That's right. Yep. We're looking forward to that. Robbie's getting married. So yes. you have both your kids married, which is just a great place to be in life, mm. isn't it? It's Absolutely. Just, sure I think is. it's a sweet yes. spot to yes. be. Um, well, let's set the stage for this uh, 
conversation. And when you were first married 36 years ago, what did work and, and purpose, what did that look like at the beginning of your journey together? You know, I, uh, tr- truthfully, uh, after graduating, we got married shortly after uh, we graduated from the same university, and it was something we did. It was just something that was expected of us. It was just the, the next stage in life. I can't say that we, we thought much beyond the next couple years. It was we needed to earn a living. We were on our own. We were independent. And there was an expectation that we would carry uh, carry our own load beginning really day one after we graduated. Right. So. Right. You were off the payroll. That's right. <laughs> and what about for you, Rose? I would say the same thing. It, I graduated with a degree. I got a job in my field. Which I, was what? Which was interior design. Okay. I knew I didn't want to work forever, that mm-hmm. I wanted to be a stay-home mom. Mm-hmm. So work for me was just work, you know, make money. We can save. We can pay off our house and work until we start to have a family. Okay. And what was your degree in, Bob? Uh, undergrad is uh, finance and accounting. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And so where did you start with work? What were the first jobs you had? I started with the IRS. Oh, as an interior designer. Exactly, yes. Yes, yes, yes. In Newark, New Jersey, just doing some of their offices. Okay. All right. Awesome. And Bob, what I I started with with Johnson Johnson in a management development program. It was a five-year program, and um, I uh, was there for, in the management development program for about five years before moving on to uh, to other things. Uh, okay. So at that point, did you, did you know you were an entrepreneur or Rose, did you have any idea? I had no idea. Because I yet. grew up in a family, right, my dad worked for the same company his whole life. And his father had worked for Johnson & Johnson. So I just assumed you start working with a company and you just keep going until you retire. And I'd never go. heard of the word. I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. Nothing. Yeah. It definitely wasn't as common in, would this have been early 80s? That's yes. right, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So y'all were married 1983. Three. okay. So no clue yet. Um, and tell us just a little bit about a timeline for you, Bob, in those early years of, of work with Johnson & Johnson, leading up to the point where you decided to launch Tapestry. Sure. Um, I, I would say, you know, my undergraduate degree in finance and accounting was actually sort of a miscast for my background. I, I actually was much more creative and innovative in high school. Um, to tell you the truth, I didn't give a whole lot of thought to why I was a finance and accounting major other than I had a good friend and a teammate that was one. My father was a finance and accounting major and it was a very defined career path so it it uh it really helped a creative person like myself provide some structure and guardrails for for the early stages of of my career Uh, the management development program also provided structure to focus on um, business in general and you know, the financial aspects of, of business in particular. But I can't say that was really, uh, it wasn't my love or passion. Okay. It was, I think, in the back of my mind, it was always this creative desire to create something new. So we hmm. had 
even shortly after we were married, we started oh, several yeah. very small ventures, um, you know, along the ways that tested tested the waters and maybe maybe tested our marriage <laughs> a little bit too. Uh, yeah, I totally forgot about that, but okay, yeah. yes. Yeah, oh, I don't think awesome. I've heard that piece of the story. Yeah, okay. So when you said creative in high school, like what what do you mean by that? What creative how? So um, I you know I, I remember as a freshman or sophomore taking a course in advertising, and I had mm-hmm. an uncle who had some experience on Madison Avenue. Uh, this he was he would have been kind of part of the uh, Mad Men crowd from the '60s, and really? he was very encouraging in terms of you know this, this particular project that I was working on that was kind of a creative uh, product concept that I had pitched in high school, and. Uh, I knew that that's what my natural inclination was. I wasn't necessarily a numbers guy, um, but um, yeah, it, so it, it expressed it, it's, itself in that ways and in ways like that. And um, uh, I guess just my interest, it wasn't a focused interest. I had, you know, by contrast, a lot of friends in high school, went on to college in engineering or medicine or law, and I just wasn't, that that just wasn't my interest. Okay. So. All right. So, like, yeah. did you ever start a business in high school? Did you have a lemonade stand as a kid? I did. So I had a, a, a shoe company um, in high school. I was a, I was a high school and, and college um, athlete, runner. And so for a couple seasons, I had a business reselling shoes. They were sort of leftovers from Nike and Adidas, and I would take them to track meets, and I would either wear them myself or find other uh, really talented runners <laughs> and have them run it almost as a sponsorship and uh-huh. um, would use that as a way to resell shoes. Very cool. small business. Though. So that was uh, that was high school or college? High school, yeah. High school, okay. So then... You went to work for Johnson and Johnson, and tell us a little bit about uh, the early part of your career there. Um, you started some, I think you called them intrapreneurial things. So, just give us a little bit of a timeline and uh, some of the highlights leading up to deciding to start your own. Sure. So, um, Johnson Johnson had a very well developed management development program that was really geared towards generating, um, developing the next generation of uh, general managers and senior management. So the concept was uh, you came in as an undergraduate, you, and every nine to 12 months, you rotated to a different functional area of the company, and you learned the business from the perspective of sales, marketing, finance, um, R&D, and it was a chance to understand holistically in a very short period of time, you know, five years, a relatively short period of time, to, uh, to learn how businesses work and function, all while providing financial support, but looking at financial support from the perspective of um, all of the disciplines that are required for a healthcare company. Uh, that then became the opportunity to go, um, or led to an opportunity to to go overseas in the uh, late uh, 80s, early 90s, to um, to practice those general management skills at a very young age. Before I was in my late 20s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. That was Switzerland, right? Yes. That's right. You guys were ha- there how long? Seven years. And you had both children. 
at that point? Both children were born in the U.S., but we moved there shortly after Maria was born. She was only six months, actually, when we oh moved goodness. over there. So That's a big move. It was a big and move. a long way from family. Yeah. Well, I have a sister who lives in Switzerland, so that really helped. She married a Swiss man, and um, my children had two cousins there, so oh, that was awesome. really nice. Okay. All right. So you were in Switzerland? Mm-hmm. And then what? So um, in the, well, in, in the early 1990s, in Europe in general, it was kind of a turbulent time from a geopolitical perspective. Uh, the European Union was just coming together in 1992. Okay. Uh, the Soviet Union was falling apart. So there was a need for, in uh, Western Europe to rethink how Johnson Johnson should restructure its business in the post-European Union era. And in Eastern Europe, there was an opportunity to open up these former Soviet countries that were open for the first time to Western goods for the first time in 70, 80 years. Wow. And so for a young American executive who had the benefit of um, a management development program, I was in the right place at the right time to exercise those skills both in Western Europe and then in Eastern Europe. So. Uh, it was brought over after Johnson Johnson had acquired a company in Switzerland, but ultimately that put me in a place where I was in a position to uh, help the corporation rethink its, reestablish a, a blueprint for Western Europe and to rethink how it developed the markets in Eastern Europe. Okay. And you were how old at that point, Bob? Um, we went over there when I was 30, just you know, 29. 29. Just, and so... Uh, we stayed there for seven years, so I was about 36 right. when I came home. So you got to be part of a really incredible opportunity and, and unique. Yeah, yeah in his early in 30s, right. By the time he was 36, he was done. Yeah. Yeah. The, he had accomplished a lot in yeah. those seven years. Yeah. the world. I mean, the world was changing at that point, and it was really a question of timing. I was you know, very fortunate to be in the, the right place at the right time, and for the, the company to give me the opportunity to to do things that, um, um, you know, I, 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 had, I had great training um, in, in the U.S. and it prepared me to, to take on this new challenge. And they also saw a lot of potential. One of the things I've learned about you, mm -hmm. Bob, is you are very humble mm -hmm. <laughs> and you <laughs> probably underestimate your, your mm. potential and, and mm -hmm. I'm sure they saw that. Um, so Johnson & Johnson, and what specifically, what kind of products or what, what was the business involved uh, So John, Johnson Johnson had three sectors, pharmaceutical, consumer, and medical devices. I actually worked in all three of those sectors, first in the U.S. in the pharmaceutical sector. While we were overseas, it was entirely in the consumer product sector. So the products that most people think of when they think of Johnson Johnson, baby shampoo and Band-Aids and things like that. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and then eventually moved into the medical device sector. Okay. So taking us from there to launching your own business, walk us through how that came about, how that decision came about. Sure. Well, after having practiced setting up several, several businesses in Europe, as, as Rose indicated, uh, while we were overseas, I came back to the United States as the kids were 
the kids were, um, I guess, seven, Second, eight years old, grade, yeah. and uh, it was time for us to get back to the United States. As we went over ex to Switzerland, expecting it to only be 18 to 24 months, and oh, seven years later, wow. we woke up and said, it's time for us to either make a decision to stay overseas or to move back to the States. So we made a decision to go back to the States. Now, this would have been 1996, 1997, and this was sort of at the, the height of the dot-com boom. And so okay. also, once again, the world was changing um, just as it was in, in Europe in the early 90s. It was starting to change in the West Coast of the United States and Silicon Valley. So um, we decided that we wanted to be a part of that. We had never lived in California, so it was an opportunity for us to get transferred to, uh, to Silicon Valley. We lived just, just outside of Silicon Valley, and I had a chance to do what I had been doing for seven years over in Europe in creating new entities. I was given an opportunity to do that once again for Johnson Johnson, this time in the medical device sector and uh, in California as opposed to Switzerland. Okay. And y'all were originally East Coast people, so you went all the way to the other side. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, so how did that take you then to the point where you started uh, tapestry? So I think at that point I had started um, four or five businesses within the court, within Johnson Johnson, and all but the last one I would say were were successful by by any measure. Um, we had we achieved our objectives, and then I moved on and started another one, and so forth and so on. The last business, however, I guess by by certain measures was not successful, and found myself. Um, in charge of a medical device division that um, uh, didn't ultimately didn't fit within the strategic objectives of the part of Johnson Johnson that I was working for. I was working okay. for the diabetes business. My particular division was uh, had a cardiovascular product for home monitoring, and um, I, I I guess by 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 some measures in terms of developing a technology, developing. Um, national healthcare policy, we were successful, but the business model just didn't fit within what the diabetes business was doing. And so the corporation made a decision to pull the plug in the business that I was running. Mm -hmm. So that was, uh, I would say that was uh, my, my first um, new venture failure within Johnson Johnson. But that then led to the opportunity to, for me to go out on my own. I was, at that point, I was given a choice either to move back to Johnson Johnson corporate or a corporate job or to actually take this business and pursue it on my own as, uh, as an independent entrepreneur. Okay. And I remember from a previous conversation, I think your, your kids voted no on that. Was, was that the move I'm, am I recalling Yes, that, that's, or? that's right. Um, so at one point uh, we, we, you know, I shared with the kids that uh, there were several opportunities and one opportunity I think was back in Boston or, or New Jersey. And I described it to them and they said, sounds like a great opportunity for you, dad. I just hope you come back and, and visit us sometimes. <laughs> so it's visitation, like, right? We, right. They, yeah, they said, we are not uh -huh. going to, uh, we love California. We're not going to yeah. the, the cold Northeast. Yeah. So, and so uh, what year about was that or how old, how old were they at the time? 2003. Yeah, 2002, yeah. 2003. They were getting ready for high school. They were maybe junior high, getting ready for yeah, high school. Seventh, eighth so grade. definitely, they're like, no, we're not yeah. moving. Yeah. And, exactly. and really wise that you even asked them. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was an option involved. And what were your thoughts, Rose? 
Um, again, I didn't want to leave California. You loved it also. Yes. I loved the weather. I loved everything about it. But yet again, it was scary for me if he was going to leave the security of something that we had for all these years to go out on his own. Right. And so you had a really unique um, experience, Bob, in terms of being able to start some things, but under the umbrella of being salaried and, you know, not have to worry about where the next paycheck is coming from or how you're making payroll. Um, so great, great learning opportunity. All right. So tell me about the decision to start. What was that like between the two of you? Did, did you discuss it much as a couple or how did that, what did that look like? I'll let I'm, you start and then I'll jump in. Yeah. So uh, as I, I can't recall the specific conversations, but I'm, I'm certain that we talked about it because it was a major decision and had a lot of implications. I think the, as I recall, I received a lot of encouragement and support from Rose, partly because she, she really understood what I was doing for the years leading up to, to that that point in time. She was very familiar with the division I was running at Johnson Johnson at the time, which then served as the, the basis for the independent venture. So I didn't have to kind of take her through all of the nuances associated with the business at the time. She, she, she was tracking. She was, I was doing a lot of work back in Washington to convince uh, the folks at Medicare and the FDA and some folks in Congress to establish this new healthcare policy that was the, that, that was the basis for the business that um, that I was responsible for. And so she, she understood everything that was going on. And she understood that uh, we had done a lot of the hard things under, while I was still under Johnson Johnson's roof. Okay. Uh, we, we, Getting we got, funding for it. It was more for Medicare age population. The yeah, we get, we, 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 we worked with Medicare. We convinced Medicare to provide national coverage, which is not something they do very frequently, mm. uh, which I learned after the fact. I thought it happened all the time and, you know, um, went about uh, working with some, some top docs in the country and we, we established, uh, national coverage mm. for this particular category. And, um, that was, that was suitable for, uh, Medicare patients. And so Rose was just, she was very familiar with the opportunity that we're chasing. And then the question, so the question was not whether we, I, we were pursuing a good market opportunity. The question was, do we do this under Johnson Johnson's roof or do um, you know? Do we do this on our own? Now Johnson Johnson made the decision that they weren't going to pursue it under their roof. Uh -huh. So then the question was, do I want to take that idea and pursue it um, as an independent entrepreneur? So that was the real question. But I think the fundamental questions of is this a good idea, Rose was already very supportive of. And, Even uh, though you said it, it had not really been successful. Well, it wasn't successful in that the, um, the, that particular business didn't fit within the company's diabetes objectives. So it was, um, it was successful in that we were able to establish national healthcare policy for this particular, um, business opportunity. We had actually developed a technology that was, was cleared by the FDA. The only question was, did that particular business fit within 
the Johnson Johnson okay. business unit that I was okay. a part of, and they said it didn't. It was more suitable as an independent entity, and so they approached me and said, would you like to buy the business uh, or have it spun out from Johnson Johnson? And, and so that's the decision. That was the, the decision point, yeah. Yes. And tell us just a little bit uh, what the device was. I mean, what was the technology that you were working with at the time? Sure. The technology was a, a home uh, blood monitor that monitored patients who were on blood thinners, um, uh, specifically the, the drug uh, Warfarin, or as it's known by uh, Coumadin, blood thinner used to prevent uh, strokes and blood clots, etc. And for many years, uh, even today, it's one of the most widely used drugs uh, in America. And the challenge associated with it is it's a, uh, it has the same active ingredient that's used in decon. Uh, rat poison, oh, so it's, it 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 prevents the, the the blood from clotting, which is a good thing if you're you have a high propensity for blood clots. Uh, but if it's uh, over or underused, either your risk of stroke or the risk of internal bleeding go up. So the challenge is monitoring individuals to make sure that their coumadin levels or warfarin levels are just just right. So similar similar to glucometers that people diabetes use. To monitor the blood sugar, except we weren't measuring blood sugar; we were measuring clotting time for for these individuals on on warfarin. And it's real sensitive, right? Diet can affect it, and yeah, yeah, other drug um, interactions exactly. So, and this was monitoring that they could do at home. That's correct. Okay, yeah. all right. So, just you know, so that our listeners have a context for what it what the technology was that you were working with. Mm -hmm. So, you had the decision whether or not to buy it from Johnson and Johnson and take it on your own. And so what, how did you come to that decision? What do you remember about that? I remember after that, I don't remember so much that decision, although we did pursue that, right? That's right. And there were some issues then with them releasing it and then being, I guess, following through on the contract. So, Am I remembering that yeah, correctly? Yeah, I think that the, the real issue was, you know, they had spent um, you know, tens of millions of dollars developing the technology, and uh, because they weren't pursuing it, the technology had no further use to them. So they yeah. were, you know, they were willing to sell it for a, a fraction of what what they had spent to develop it, which then meant we would have it, we would have had to purchase the the business for. Um, for you know, even a discounted rate, it was still a lot of money that would have required raising money from venture capitalists in in uh, Silicon Valley, and so that's what we did. We we actually we we I approached several venture capital firms, okay. uh, had some offers from some top firms for you know, thirteen to fifteen million dollars to to acquire the business, and the the next decision point became whether we would uh, raise the money from venture capitalists and buy the business from Johnson Johnson or look at an alternative path. Um, the, in, after, in very short order, I mean, in a matter of three or four weeks, we received several, um, several offers from top VC firms. But what, very quickly, the offers um, said they, they would give us the $13, $15 million that we were looking for, but they would own 80% of the company. Oh. And we, you know, since myself and my, my founding team were really the originators of the idea, it just seemed like 
we were just employees all over again. The whole purpose mm -hmm. of going out and becoming an entrepreneur was to be independent on our own. And, yeah. and so this whole notion of just collectively owning 20% of the company just didn't feel right. So we then pursued a second path, which was to partner with another company that had a device, similar device, that was suitable for the same purpose. So the all of the healthcare policy that we had worked on with Medicare also applied to the other company as well. So we said, okay. rather than owning our own technology, we developed a, um, a relationship, a marketing relationship with another large company that had a medical device, but didn't have the marketing expertise and the healthcare policy expertise that, that we did. And we just struck a different deal that didn't require us to raise venture capital money but it did require Rose and I to invest our own savings to mm -hmm. start start the company on our own. So that was the the next critical decision we we made was to to self fund our business, or sometimes called bootstrapping our uh -huh, business, right? And uh, and maintaining one hundred percent of the ownership of the company okay. on our own. So you didn't buy the technology from Johnson and Johnson. You partnered with this other company. That, that's correct. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And do you remember what that felt like then to just, okay, this is, this is a different turning point in this journey. Um, here's our savings. Well, for me, I was, I'm the more nervous of the two of us and I am not the risk taker of the two of us. So the comforting thing for me was, first of all, I trusted him a hundred percent. Okay. Mm -hmm. But underlying that, I knew we had some savings. I knew he had a severance package, you know, f for so many months we'd be okay. Mm -hmm. And then after that we had COBRA, which is another big payment, you know, that you have to make. So our healthcare was taken care of for another year. So it's like, okay, I think if we can do it within this time frame, Which was a year? Maybe it was a year, a year and a half. I would say it was a year and a half. I said, okay, all right, for a year and a half, we have some funds coming in, okay. right? He can pursue what I know he knows what he's doing. And I 100% knew he knew what he was doing. And I remember you saying once you trusted him 100% and right. he had 150% Yeah, exactly. He had 150% <laughs> confidence, right? Like he was the only one in the country who uh -huh. knew what he was doing. So I was like, yeah. I really know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And if I can mm -hmm. say, I had some spectacular dreams and confirmations from God that he was supposed to do that. Really? And we were going to be okay. Really? So there yes. was affirmation along that, that yes. route. Yes. Thinking a year, year and a half. And what after a year and a half, thinking that it would be sold at that point, or that was just as far as you could see at that point? It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, um, we had so much momentum, uh, even prior to leaving Johnson Johnson, working on, you know, the FDA and, and Medicare and convincing Congress to, to provide this national policy, which set up the market. I mean, I can't underscore the importance of setting up that national policy. Without the national policy, there was no market. There was okay. no business. And so we had so much momentum going into that, uh, that after we were successful at convincing Medicare to establish this national coverage, um, it was shortly thereafter that we were faced with the decision to buy the business from J&J &J or then self-fund it. We were just, you know, uh, we, we just decided to 
to start the business because it was the logical next step to do. But at that point, I don't think we ever sat down and said, well, we've got a five-year plan and we're going to sell the business. I mean, we would have been forced into that thinking in speaking to, uh, or had we taken the, the money from the, the venture capitalist. But I was just focused on, you just let's just run the business and run it, achieve our objectives, and hopefully do some, some good for, for these patients who were at risk of strokes and bleeding and things will you know find a way to work themselves out when you work for a big company and start a company within the within the corporation you don't think about selling the company because big comp johnson johnson's right. been around for 150 years those businesses i started are still there they're still running so there's no thought of an exit or you know an ipo it was just you've got a job to do get it done and so we were we were into the business for a couple of years before uh, I had some advisors I brought in. They started asking about what our exit plan was. We were showing good traction in the marketplace, mm -hmm. and they said, "What's your exit plan?" I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> Is like, that retirement? Yeah, yeah right, exactly. Right. You know, uh, I was so, happy we were making money. Okay, we can kind of replace our salary, and that's what you do for the rest of your life. That's what I thought you do, right? Okay, you just you work until you retire, and then it's over. And that was how many years into after you went out on your own? Uh, that was um, probably two and a half years. Um, yeah, we were yeah about two and a half years into it. Um, our our performance in the market was uh, was very strong. Um, sales increased every year by a hundred percent year on year for five years. Um, by the time. Um, you know, by, by the time we sold the business, just about five years after we started it, we had become one of the fastest growing private companies in the in the country. And I think the fastest growing healthcare company in the country. Hmm. And uh, but it wasn't just a straight linear um, progression. Um, in fact, the story that I, I share in the form of a case study with with the students I teach is just that it talks about the the bumps along the way the journeys and there were there were several in particular that coincided with the financial crisis of 2008 that really caused um well it was it was, it was uh, from a business perspective it was it was a real crisis mm -hmm. can you tell us a little more about that because i think it's important for entrepreneurs and couples to know that it's not a straight path. It's easy mm -hmm. to meet someone when they're on the other side, they've sold or, or they have someone else running the company. And in almost any venture, there mm -hmm. are dips along the way and unforeseen, like you said, the financial crisis of 2008. Right. I mean, some people in hindsight said, oh yeah, we saw it coming, but who knows? Exactly. Um, so can you tell us a little more about that and how that impacted um, your company? Sure. So let me take you back to the first half of 2008. As you know, the financial crisis happened in September of 2008 and it really broke in 2008. Um, in the first half of 2008, um, things never looked better for tapestry. Um, in the beginning of the year, our supplier, who was a major medical company, uh, Fortune 500 company that was supplying us the equipment that we used to provide our service. So Medicare paid us for the service. Uh, we used their product 
this particular this uh, Fortune 500 company's product to facilitate our service. So the two went hand in hand, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and and they had come up with a new next generation technology that was easier to use, et cetera. So that was great. This is early 2008. Medicare also. Uh, because they liked this, what we were doing so much, not just us, but our competitors decided to expand the number of people that were eligible for this new benefit by fivefold. So it went from about a half a million people being eligible to three million people being eligible, oh with ex which ex had the effect of expanding the market from about a half a billion dollars a year for the market potential to about five or six billion dollars. As, as, a, as, a, as a total market. And so everything was looking really good at that time. Our sales were continuing to grow year on year. We were generating cash flow. It was a very capital intensive business. It cost us $1,000 to enroll every new patient. Oh, and wow. then we, we collected about $200 a month. So in about five or six months on an individual patient, we had a payback. And then, you know, it was a, an annuity stream after that. If you can imagine, if your business is growing at an exponential rate and you're constantly spending $1,000 for every new patient, it was always, you know, you, we were always kind of chasing our tail from a cash perspective. So healthy business, but we were always on the edge from a cash perspective. So in early 2008, in order to address that, we had to, uh, we, we went to the SBA, our, our community bank, and got some SBA loans okay. and mortgaged our, our home in California. We had a uh, vacation property back on the East Coast, and we mortgaged both of those properties and, um, and took out, uh, we, at that time, credit was very free. Um, Costco, if I can focus. Mm -hmm. Costco had an American <laughs> Express program with a 2% cash discount. And cash back, right. Uh, we had at one point, uh, you know, several hundred thousand dollars of a line of credit on our Costco American Express card, which we could use to buy inventory, not from Costco, but we would use the, the credit card and the 2% cash best program to buy inventory from the, the, um, the medical device manufacturer. And so, as you can imagine, we were buying hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh, equipment per per month, and that two percent started to really add up, and that actually became a basis for paying our salary uh, yeah. for for a few years. And uh, but despite that, the business was everything was just going well. The first half of two thousand eight, although we, we had our houses um, uh, completely mortgaged and double mortgaged, just uh, like real just life like monopoly. Yeah. Exactly. You've mortgaged yeah. everything at this yeah. point, and you were good with that, Rose. Or I was that... okay with that. We we cashed in his mm -hmm. um, retirement. We took a loan against our our life insurance, or we cashed in our life insurance. Right. Yeah, as long as I met my mortgage payment, uh -huh. I was happy. And then, right, I had very creative ways of using money and using credit cards to pay off the next one to pay off the next one, just to, you know, yeah. and those um, offers were available at that time. Those were the 0%? Remember right, 0% for time? six months. So I took out as much as I could. You know, I used it for six months and or by the fifth month, another one would come and say, oh, take out some. So I take it off. I pay the other one off. So I never paid any interest, but I just kind of used free money 
along the way to, to pay our bills, to put our kids in, you know, through school, everything. They're high schoolers at this point. They were high right? schoolers, okay. yeah. Yeah, which gets ever more expensive. They're mm-hmm. into cars and that sort of thing. Okay, so cash flow is a challenge. Cash flow is mm-hmm. a challenge, but we were we were managing from a business perspective and Rose did an amazing job managing from a from a family perspective. In fact, I would say pretty much after I started the business, she was the she was our chief financial officer. I mean, in terms of managing cash flow, really? she was I mean, did you actually not for have the business? Yeah, not, not no, for the business, for, our for, for a house. But yeah, I, I didn't, th- I didn't CFO know. CFO for the family. He CFO had no family. idea how we were paying for things. Yeah, I still don't. I right. think there's some <laughs> black magic going on there. You probably there. don't want to know at this point, Bob, well, but yeah. everything came out everything good. Right, okay. everything came yeah. out okay. But then, then the in September of 2008, three things happened um, that coincided with the financial crisis. So the financial crisis actually wasn't a problem for us, except that all of these three other problems happened in the midst of the financial crisis, which just magnified things for us. Uh, The very first thing is uh, the partner that we had supplying us medical devices saw how good that we were doing. Now, we were still a privately funded company. They were a public funded company, and they were starting to see how well we were doing in the service, providing services using their devices. And they said, you know, um, you're doing very well. We've got this new technology that you're using and doing very well. We think we would like to get into your business. A vertical integration is what, you know, it's called. And so they said, um, we'll continue to provide you, uh, supply you product, no problem there. But rest assured, we intend to uh, compete against you. Hmm. So it's uh, so that was um, that was. I suppose it shouldn't have been surprising. It was it was disappointing, but nonetheless, they had the right to do it, and we weren't uh, objecting to that. Uh, but it meant we had a brand new competitor, a well-funded, publicly co- traded company, competing with us. At the same time, there were three or four other large publicly traded companies that were seeing what we were doing in the marketplace and decided they wanted a piece of the action too. They figured, here's this small little privately funded company called Tapestry um, becoming the market leader in this market that typically large healthcare companies are. So all of a sudden we found ourselves competing against four large publicly traded companies in this um, still relatively small but uh, vastly growing market because of Medicare's coverage decision. So that was the first situation. The second situation was at the same time, Medicare announced that they were considering, excuse me, the FDA announced that they were considering a brand new class of drugs that would replace the need for warfarin. And even now, 10 years later, you still see a lot of commercials that talk about, that compare um, these new drugs uh, against warfarin. Well, those drugs didn't exist 10 years ago. They were announced just in the fall of 2008. They became an, an, a direct threat to our business because to the extent that people were no longer using warfarin or Coumadin, they didn't need, they wouldn't need our service. So that was a, that was kind of a longer, tune, uh, longer term kind of existential threat that we were facing, mm-hmm. but still you know, very real. That was the second uh, threat. The third threat, and, and really the most serious one was as we were as we were expanding our business, we moved to a brand new facility. We got a beautiful new facility, 40,000 square 
feet on the other side of town. And in the process of moving from a smaller facility to a newer facility, um, Medicare, uh, there was an administrative uh, snafu, I'll say, um, with Medicare and that, that caused them to stop paying us. They lost our, our, our change of address notice, and it seems like a trivial matter, but it wasn't a trivial matter. Oh, that's huge. Um, it's your primary, or was it the only it, uh, it was it, it was the primary source of, it was 90% of our cash flow was tied up with Medicare. 90%. Yeah. And so Medicare, there were, they, there were some other changes going on at, at Medicare at the time, and Medicare said, okay, we've got to stop paying you because we don't recognize this new address. Wow. We've... And so until we can come out and make an inspection, we are going to turn up the cash flow. And they said, well, it's going to take us six to nine months to come out and do an inspection. No way. <laughs> so, six to nine months? And so at oh that time, goodness. again, uh, you know, our business was growing uh, 100% uh, month on month, um, year on year. And every new patient cost us another $1,000. So uh, the, the more successful we were, the more cash we needed. And so our cash demands were ever increasing. Our competition in the short term was increasing because we had large publicly traded companies coming in to compete against us. And our primary source of 90% of our cash flow disappeared. And all, you know, shortly after we had just mortgaged both homes and put our it's retirement savings. In. Yeah. And then all of this happened actually in the first, uh, it happened the first week of September 2008. The second week of September 2008, the financial crisis really, you know, oh, the meltdown began with Lehman Brothers and Stern, uh, Bear Stearns, et cetera. And so the idea of going out and getting other financing to hold us over, it was not to be had. I mentioned the credit cards that we had um, at that point. $375,000 of uh, credit on the credit card, which, by the way, we paid off every single month. In fact, sometimes right. we paid it off multiple times per month in right. order to keep the cash coming. So um, we weren't, we didn't overextend ourselves from a credit card perspective, but overnight, American Express limited, reduced our uh, credit limit from $375,000 to $15,000. Holy cow. And so overnight that just disappeared. And so for the period between middle of September until the middle of November, uh, we didn't know what was going to happen. Wow. Things yeah. got very, very, very serious. We, we got our members of Congress involved. Keep in mind, this was also in the middle of the 2008 presidential election. So the sort of individuals we might have been able to lean on with the former Bush administration, frankly, they were, you know, they were on their way out. Right. The Obama administration at that point hadn't yet taken shape. So there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of who to go to oh within Washington. Yeah. Aside from that, mm. things were great. <laughs> <laughs> it was rosy and unicorns and rainbows. So, so what did you do? How did you get over that hump? Was it a hump? Was it years? What, what did that trajectory? Well, Bob has like? a story involving the um, the Medicare part of it. Yeah, Hun, why don't, why don't you share what you were thinking about that time? And you, you know the time period. It was around November of two thousand eight. It was like after the presidential election, but before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And then I'll pick up on that. Yeah. 
Well, I, um, I had planned a trip to Israel with our church. Uh-huh. They were doing a trip, and I think I signed up in the spring, so April or May. Mm-hmm. The trip was in October. You know, I had already paid for it. I was like, oh, but should I go? Shouldn't I go? I think we made the decision that I should go, you know, because I should go, and it was it was Israel. Everyone always needs to go to Israel. But th- things were bothering me, and I knew we could lose both of our houses. I knew we could lose everything. Yeah. But I wasn't afraid for some reason. I really wasn't afraid. I just knew somehow everything would work out. I didn't know how it was going to work out. I just knew that we were always protected because the, you know, the free credit that allowed um, the financial crisis to happen was the free credit we were kind of floating on right, right. All, all those years. So that was, that was good for us. You know, we had gone down to the bare minimum of expenses. So I know we'd, we would be okay there. And all right, if we had to sell our house, okay, you know, that's what would happen. But um, I think Bob knew more of the details, maybe. And I, I no, maybe I shouldn't say that. I knew the details. But I also knew in going through, there were a lot of other little things that happened with the business that he didn't share that when he was faced with something, it's like, oh my goodness, here's a dead end. Mm-hmm. He, he would sit in his office and he would think and he would think and he would think and he would come up with the most ingenious way to get over that hump that that barrier was there for a reason, right? It was like, oh, okay. And it would turn out that the barrier that caused him to stop and come up with a creative solution to fix that problem, which mm-hmm. seemed like a dead end in front of you and on both sides, was because we really needed to go in another direction. Mm. And the direction was better than we could have imagined. You couldn't see that at the time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Because when he started it, he wanted, the or the I think the beginning of the business was, let's get the device paid for and then... Mm-hmm. We're, we're good. We're golden. Mm-hmm. But the better model was to get a service model where we had to place the device and you get the ongoing annuity stream. You pay for right. the device over time, but mm-hmm. then as long as the people were testing and we could keep them healthy, you know, it was a much better model. It's ongoing income. Ongoing okay. income. So okay. there were four or five things like that that happened to us with the meters, with the competition, and there was always a bigger and better solution. So I didn't know how this was going to turn out. I think I was just, I was okay. I don't know how I can say other than I was okay. And I knew we would Hmm. be okay. And were you aware? I mean, he had to be under a lot of stress at that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Under a lot of stress. How did that play out in your marriage? I I always felt supported. I really did. And I think, um, I, I think I... I'm. I don't recall any ever holding anything back. Not. I mean, not anything material. And if I held things back, it was just like it was a trivial detail you didn't need to oh, know. Yeah. It, but it was. Mm-hmm. And and it was. Yeah. I never. I never felt. What. I, what I'll say is, I never felt uh, the need to uh, shield Rose from bad news okay. or or risk. 
because I knew that I needed her support when we were making these critical decisions. This mm-hmm. sounds like, you know, I think it's important to realize, we, you know, we didn't wake up in the middle of 2008 and say, gosh, how did we get, you know, several million dollars in debt? Several through, million. Yeah, through, well, through, through, um, through the loans. So right. the SBA right. loans had right. to be personally guaranteed okay. and, and uh, collateralized with our homes okay. and the funds and, you know, retirement mm-hmm. funds so it was all you know that was hanging over our heads and and in order to be able to bring rose along for those decisions i had to be completely transparent so there was never a time yeah. where yeah and i i think i can kind of search my conscience and know that no there was nothing we held back because frankly i didn't want to be well, I, just, <laughs> I want to join join ownership on those decisions. You didn't Look, want to be out there, on that limb. I by didn't. Yourself. I did not want to be on the other end of "I told you so." Be, and, and there, there was yeah, never. Yeah, there was no, never there, an there was "I told nev- you so." Yeah. and there was never anything. Well, why didn't you tell me that? No, he told me everything. Okay, and were you glad for that, Rose, or did you ever think I just I just don't even want to know? Because I think that's where couples yeah. are real different. Some couples do talk about all aspects of the business. Mm-hmm. Some people work in the business together um other couples um just you know the spouse just puts their head in the sand and doesn't want to know which my observation is that is an incredible weight on the entrepreneur on the one that is making those decisions and like you said it's even though um you were the one that had to execute knowing that you were in agreement Mm -hmm. It helps to have a team. I mean, yeah. you are a team as a couple. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, I know that we made all of the decisions, and I know he would come to me and say, all right, you know, we need to guarantee this loan. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is there to do it. You know, it's us. We got to do it. We yeah. need the money. Yeah. And we would make the decisions together. So I never felt like I was in the dark. I always felt like I knew what was going on. So maybe if I said before... Um, I wasn't aware of the intricacies of the business. I have no idea how many monitors he ordered every month or what the credit card bills were. I knew what was going on in my household finances. And he had no idea what was going on in the household finances. If I said, you know, next month we're going to need a paycheck because I have these three things coming Mm -hmm. up, Mm -hmm. you know, we're okay until then, but I need some money for that. Then maybe we would get paid like every three months he would get half a paycheck or something like that. So as long as we were just keeping our head above the water, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was okay. Because I did see the growth. I mean, we moved into that giant building that we didn't need because it was, you know, going under foreclosure and we got it at a good price. And so, again, the same things that drove us, that drove the business up and kept the market low, got us in the building that... Who knew we were going to expand into that entire thing? We thought wow. we were just going to be in this little space because we couldn't stay where we were anymore. Yeah, we ended up filling up the, all that yeah, space. Yeah, they filled because up that entire building. It was incredible. Oh, my goodness. And How we many moved employees? in there with 12, 15 people. Maybe we moved into a building. 12, 15 people. And did you have but, a partner, Bob, or you were the sole owner? We, um, yeah, we, we, I, I did have... Um, uh, you know, a senior manager who came on board, who was you know with us from the from the very early stages, and in later years, her and her husband also uh, provided some funding for the business, and she was a great asset. I mean, 
very, you know, her, the two of us complemented one another, one another very well. Um, she was very extroverted and was very good with our, our team. I was kind of the policy strategy guy and, um, you know, we worked uh, very well together. But the financial burden really fell on your shoulders. Yeah, I, I think, like. yeah, I, I mean, I was the both, I was functioning as the company CFO, but, and, and most of the funding was, um, you know, was, was personally guaranteed by, by Rose and myself okay. uh, from, from day one. Um, so, but, but I, I think it's important to recognize we, it wasn't, you know, some people kind of look at where we were in November of 2008 during this critical juncture mm -hmm. and say, how could you have let yourself get to the situation where you had, you know, literally millions of dollars of potential uh, debt between you know, mortgages and houses and, and how could you get yourself into that, that situation? And, and the truth is it didn't happen overnight. It was, it right. happened rationally mm -hmm. in step functions yeah. as, you know, as the business was growing, we were never fueling an unhealthy business. I think that's the important thing. Yeah. We were always fueling positive growth. Yes. And be, because, as I said, the, ca the business was uh, cash intensive um, in order to acquire and enroll new patients, the more successful we were, the more cash we needed and so mm -hmm. forth and so on. So the only way to allow the cash flow to catch up would have been to taper down our, our growth. And that just that had other consequences in terms of the value of the business. The faster sure. the business was growing, the more valuable it was, but the less cash we had. So we were in this kind of vicious cycle uh, in about two weeks before Thanksgiving in 2008. The presidential elections had, had finished. The Bush administration back in D.C. was sort of, you know, they were transitioning out. The Obama administration had transitioned in. And we still had this problem with CMS not paying us. And it was during that time that um, I had a, a crisis of faith. So I would say, you know, one of the things I realized at this point in time was while um, I thought I had a very strong faith at that point in time, I realized that my business had become my idol. It was in, in, in the very, it was the very definition of an idol. I was holding on to it in a way that was unhealthy. Um, and, uh, you know, I can say, well, gosh, I was looking to provide for the family and all the employees that we were hiring. Mm -hmm. At that point, we had about 75 full-time employees and I think about 700 contract workers around the country. So we had a lot of people that were depending upon us. And, but at that point, we were, um, the business had become, it had become my idol, the most important thing in my in my life at that point. And it was only at this point where I really felt hopeless. I mean, we had done everything we could to try to convince Medicare to turn our payment back on and correct the error that they had made. And um, I realized that it was completely out of my control. And it was in finally accepting that, that was my turnaround, both from a both from a personal faith perspective and from kind of the next chapter. In so tapestry. what specifically changed when you said uh, that was my turnaround? What what changed at that time? I, I became a you know there's a there's there's an expression that if you can if you can deal with a worst case scenario mm -hmm. then you can deal with 
anything or if you can deal with your greatest fear you have nothing to fear and so we that's what we did so it, it was about that time that I, you know early 2000 uh, november 2008 where um i said to myself first and then i think i said to rose you know if it's if it's god's plan to put us out of business mm-hmm. lose our business lose our homes lose our retirement um savings then i'm okay with that i really i just i got to the point where i really was okay with that i can't you know I wouldn't have liked it and maybe mm-hmm. you know right <laughs> it might have been uncomfortable living under a bridge uh yeah. uh but um I got to the point where personally I could I can say I really was willing to accept that with the I I think also with some confidence that you know we'd find a way to to bounce back and you know mm-hmm. wh- however the financial crisis worked out it would just be another chapter that might take many many years to develop but that somehow things would work out and when i finally got it to peace with that and realized that there's nothing i can do to convince medicare to make this turn around i think at that point i really was at peace for about mm-hmm. two weeks before as we were leading up to a really fateful day where we were 48 hours from literally losing everything losing the business losing putting about 10,000 patients removing them from this what medicare considered a life-saving service we would have had to pull the service from them because we were out of business we would have put our 75 full-time employees and 700 part-time employees out of business in the middle of the financial crisis we would have been financially destitute our kids would have come home from thanksgiving break they were both in in college at that point two kids in college two mm-hmm. kids in college and they would not have been able to to return back to school after thanksgiving break and we would have had to to start over and so mm-hmm. getting to the point where i was really okay with that like that we were somehow going to be taken care of was was really really critical just being at peace with that mm-hmm. didn't solve the problem <laughs> and when you say at peace i mean were you feeling anxiety what were you feeling what was you said 48 hours away from that becoming worst case scenario becoming a reality. Yeah, I think his um his business associate, I was in the office that day and she said, "Rose, can you look up on the computer, you know, what do you do? How do you lay off people? How do you fire oh, people? Gosh. We're in California, you know, download the regulations, print them out for me, see what we have to do, how much notice we have to give." and i was like oh yikes okay this is kind of real now but all right i got to do that so is it just sort of one foot in front of the other at that point because all options have been expended yeah, yeah. we yeah we 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 were in crisis mode at that point um i had some crisis experience from my time with johnson johnson i was there during when johnson johnson as you may know way back when had um uh a crisis with Tylenol Tylenol poisons this back yes. in the early 80s so i was actually with the the division when that happened so i had a chance to see just a very young employee i was an intern at the time i saw that unfold i saw the way that the, our Johnson Johnson's chairman at the time handled that and it was really you know understanding how to operate under pressure was really i think formational for you know a young executive at the time and i think 
we carried over a lot of those principles into the way that we structured our business. And I, I hope, I mean, that, that's what I was trying to model during this, this, uh, these critical 48 hours leading up mm-hmm. to Thanksgiving. On, Except that on everything is on your shoulders now, not Johnson and Johnson. That, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. This is a whole yeah. different yeah. level of pressure. And I mean, in the worst case scenario, that's when you hear people committing suicide yeah. in, in, you yeah. know, really feeling hopeless. Right. So how did you hang on? How did you? Yeah. I have to say after this, after this moment where I literally relinquished um, the business as my idol, I was never at that risk. I mean, it's, I've had that question asked too, like, mm-hmm. what were you considered doing? I said, I was considering looking for the nicest box that we could find to move into <laughs> under the nicest bridge that we could find. Under the nicest bridge. Um, but, but nothing, you know, nothing that was outside of the sphere of hope. And hope is, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's, that's the sadness when people are forced to, whether it's resorting to physical harm or, um, substance abuse. That it, you know, that happens when there's an avoidance of hope. I, I, I think I had hope. I think, uh, you know, I'll, uh, this was, you know, through my faith. Uh, I was, I was given, uh, I was given the gift of hope that there would be a better day, no matter, and it may not involve running a business, mm-hmm. may not be involved living in a house or having a vacation house or having my kids in college, but there was a hope for a greater thing. And I, I really, you know, Rose created an environment that enabled me to have hope. It was, you know, I, I wasn't, there wasn't even a hint of, I told you so, or why did you do that? Or why didn't mm-hmm. you stay with J&J? And there were certainly many opportunities for her to do that, but mm-hmm. there was never even a hint of that. And um, so we had a moment, um, again, we were in California, and uh, in the spirit of hope, um, I made a trip the Monday before Thanksgiving of 2008, and met with a, uh, a business associate who had a software company in Connecticut. We agreed to meet in New York City. And I shared with him my situation. I, he has a relatively small software company, but out of desperation, I said, I, I asked him whether he could provide some float to, uh, to help us through this. He was in a, a similar situation. In that the small company financial crisis, he didn't have uh, the money to support us. Uh, but during that meeting, uh, mo- the Monday afternoon, I got a call from my attorney in, in Washington. And she said, where are you? And can you be in Washington tonight? So just so it happens, I was just a couple hours by train. And she said, I've, I've, I've arranged a meeting with the Undersecretary of Health and Human Services. So at this point, this is, you know, two levels below the president. Right. And the idea of a private, small private company like Tapestry getting a meeting with, at that point, this was really the, probably the only person in Washington, and I would say including the president, who could have solved the, solved the problem. The Secretary of Health and Human Services was already transitioning out. The president was writing his farewell speech. And the, the key person was this, this particular individual. And so I said, uh, yeah, it just so happens. I'm, she said, we've got to get down to Washington. He's going, he's agreed to meet you at 7.30 at night. Uh, and she said, after that, he's going on vacation with his family. And this, this may be one of the last business meetings he ever has in this capacity as, as undersecretary. 
And so, of course, I got the next, I got the Amtrak down to uh, DC and we had, we had a meeting and uh, it was very intimidating. Um, it was, um, top floor of the HHS building, not too far from, uh, the Washington Monument on a very clear November night. And after going through a whole security check, uh, my attorney, um, brought me up and she, she had a previous work relationship with this, uh, this uh, gentleman. And she said, okay, he's a busy guy. The fact that he's, she said, I had to pull out every single trick I had to get a meeting with him. And you've got to make this an impactful meeting. She said, he's going to be literally packing his, his, his desk, um, as, as your meeting. And, you know, you've got to let him know in no uncertain terms what you need. She will forewarn me. You can't point fingers. This was a Medicare um, administrative mistake that was made. Um, she said, no finger pointing. It's just lay out the problem. So anyway, I explained the problem. I, I first of all said, I described for him what our business did. We, we help people who were at risk of stroke um, self-monitor themselves. And then I proceeded to talk about the administrative problem. And about 90 seconds into the conversation, he started to rub his eyes and appeared to be waving me off. Oh, no. And I looked at my attorney thinking, is this meeting over? And he looked up and he, he kind of had, you know, tears in his eyes. And he said, he said, I get what your business is about. He said, my dad had a mechanical heart valve and um, had a very serious situation a few years ago because he didn't have a service like yours. He said, I get what you do. I get that it's important. What do you need? And oh, so I said, goodness. I said, well, I can breathe again. <laughs> said, yeah, yeah. Well, at this point, uh, you know, the folks at Medicare owe us about $5 million. So what I need is about $5 million in the next 48 hours. Otherwise, we're out of business and we, wow. we're going to have 10,000 people um, who will be without this life-saving service that your dad uh, needed. And he said, okay. He said, I'll see what you, I'll see what we can do. And that was it. And so with that, I went back to my hotel, uh, flew back to California the next, the next morning. And at that point, I really didn't know what to make. I mean, hearing someone in DC saying, I'll see what I can do. It was. And he's leaving to go on vacation. I'm going away to go on vacation. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. to, to his credit, um, he, uh, by the time I had arrived at SFO the next morning, I had a letter of apology from the, the head of Medicare wow. saying, uh, we have approved three and a half million dollar, uh, a three and a half million dollar wire transfer. It will be in your bank tonight. They realized they had made a mistake. Oh and they said the other remaining payment would be made in the coming days after we've had a chance to, to process them. So we had actually scheduled, um, so this is a Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, we had scheduled. This is Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. Wednesday, yeah this is Wednesday before okay. Thanksgiving. Um, so the next morning we had scheduled a town hall meeting with all of our employees who didn't know what was going on. I think they had, might've had some sense, but you know, they didn't understand how dire the situation was. And, um, so we had town hall meeting that, that I would do periodically to give the updates on the company. And the plan was to use that town hall meeting to, explain how Medicare had put us out of business. And um, so we had the town hall meeting. People were waiting anxiously, and we were able to fortunately go in and say, 
we are, um, I just gave a kind of standard update. We had, I think we purchased a bunch of turkeys with the three half million dollars <laughs> that we had. And, uh, we had pretty good credit at, at Costco. So we got a good town. deal. <laughs> exactly. And so we weren't often able to do even like we, you know, gestures like that for employees. So giving sure. them 75, tur- you know, turkeys for the employees was yeah. kind of a, a big deal. And it, the other thing it did in retrospect was calm them down. They understood that if we were in a position to, to buy turkeys for employees, all of a sudden, you know, things couldn't be that bad. How yeah. bad could they be? Yeah. We couldn't be going out of business unless we were buying the turkeys on credit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it was, um, that was the turning point. And then after that, Medicare reactivated our numbers and, and things were fine, but that led to a decision. This was four years after we'd started the company. So we had a, a great run. That then, uh, was the really the catalyst for us to say, you know what? We've, we've dodged the bullet. Mm-hmm. We've got, big one. <laughs> we've got new, you know, those four well-funded publicly traded companies were still our competitors right. and they were still hungry and ready to take over our little private, uh, this, uh, the market that we created. Um, the FDA had still launched these drugs that had the potential to eventually replace warfarin. So our long-term prognosis was still uncertain. Um, and we were sort of from a business perspective at our highest point at that point. So it was at that point we said, it's time for us to, to sell. It's time to us to really exit the business. Okay. And, uh, so. And how did you go about doing that? So we, um, we engaged an investment banker, um, and we considered several different options. There, we, one set of options was to sell to one of the large publicly traded companies who were just getting into the business and were looking for, you know, to acquire market share. We were okay. considered the gold standard, if I can say that, um, amongst the different uh, of the companies that were competing, partly because we were in there the longest. Um, I was most intimately involved with working with Medicare to establish the national policy. So I understood that, you know, the policy you know, as, as well as um, any of the companies that we did. And so we considered all of the current competitors in the market as number one. We looked at other companies that might be considering entering the, the market. And then we also looked at some private equity firms that might be interested in buying the business just for, for cash flow purposes, which would have given us an opportunity to sell part of the company and still remain in the company and then sell it or do an IPO a few years later. So, and so how, how did you end up being acquired? So we, um, we, we spoke to the top two or three candidates, including our largest competitor, and they had the, the most interest to acquire us, uh, for several reasons. One, it was an opportunity for them to become overnight the, the market leader. Two, they were having some operational problems at the time that we were not fully aware of. And so they were very interested in our management team. I was really fortunate to have, you know, in addition to the the woman who was a co-founder, um, a team of individuals that had kind of grown up in the business. Mm. Um, you know, Rose was instrumental in keeping that group of individuals um, 
you know, intact during the, the period of uncertainty. Rose, in many cases, was kind of the face, um, certainly of the Noor family, to, mm -hmm. to these. Mo most of them were women. But, yeah, uh, we had a large, yeah, female workforce. Yeah. And, and so how did you do that, Rose? I'm curious about that. I was just, um, I think I was the calming presence in the office mm. because I didn't, re I had a job as like the office manager. Okay. So you were working in the business. Yeah, I was point. working in the business, okay. but I wasn't doing anything that ever required a deadline or okay. um, to run a meeting or anything like that. But I would go around and check with all the ladies. How are you doing today? What you know? Yeah. What's new with your family? How are your children? Mm. So for them, I think it was. Oh, I'm sorry, hun. It was. Wow, like the boss's wife will talk to me. For me, it was just. And if I'm, she's not, I mean, if you had been real anxious and worried, yeah, and, exactly, and stirring things up, it it could have created much more uncertainty. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Correct. But I made friends with a lot of the women in the office. You know, some of them were our neighbors, some of them were our children's friends, moms. Yeah. So it was And even it was more wonderful. responsibility you guys must have felt when you were 48 hours away from this yeah. uh, nuclear implosion. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. What a great story. So, so you sold mm -hmm. at some point. How long mm -hmm. did it take? For that process to go through and the vetting and yeah, just just about a year. Uh, okay. By uh, there were the companies were very interested in acquiring us, so we spent probably five or six months vetting the different types of companies. So doing a roadshow, talking to the interested parties. Um, uh, our investment bankers started to solicit bids, and we considered. Um, I guess we had. Three three offers for the business, four offers for the oh. business, including a private equity firm. Nice. So we had an opportunity to to do some, okay. you know, sort of um, uh, auctioneering or the investment. That's the role the investment banker did. Okay. And for the reasons I was referring to earlier, it, our our largest competitor, which was a publicly traded company, was in the best position to pay the you know the greatest premium. Yeah. And, and and also afforded us an opportunity to stay on board for a couple of years afterwards to to run the companies, actually merge the two companies and merge ourselves with our competitors. I was named CEO of the two, the two oh, companies, okay. and we were given some incentives to stay on board. And so how long turn. before you completely exited? Um, it was about two and a half, or no, a year and a half. And then they kept me on board as a strategic advisor for two or three years after that. But at that point, it was I was pretty much um, I was pretty much done after about eighteen months. We had done what we okay. set out to do to merge the two companies, turn the turn the other co the our com former competitor around in terms of their operating practices okay. and put them on a straight path and um, and uh, did well. I mean. The company that acquired us did well in acquiring us, and I think we did well in being acquired. So it was one of those win-wins for for everyone. And so obviously, what, what year was the acquisition completed? Uh, late two thousand nine, and um, you know because of the contingency payments that extended into 2010, okay. 2011, early two thousand eleven. I, I found you on the ink. 
Yeah. Oh, 2009, okay. you were number 814 in the Inc. 5000. Yeah. And that was, yeah. that was the following year, um, the way the Inc. Uh, Inc. 5000 works is uh, you're, you're not eligible if you're acquired during the year. So oh, the okay. year that okay. if, if you were to look at, um, unfortunately, we're not listing 2010, which is based on 2009 results. Uh, but our, our ranking in the 2010 results would have been, I think, number seven or eight overall. Uh, wow. But because we were acquired in yeah. November of 2009, we were ineligible for the list. So we just have to we have to take satisfaction. That, yeah. uh, we were number eight with an asterisk. That uh, is awesome. Year. I mean, what a story. I mean, I, there's not an adventure movie that gets my heart going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was with, to be within that 48 hours. Um, and when the company was acquired, like when you signed the paper, what did you guys think or feel in that moment? Did you pop champagne? Did you take a bob nap? What? <laughs> a bob nap, by the way, is just uh, you sit down anywhere for 10 minutes and you take a little yeah. short nap. That's yeah. a bob nap. No, so we did have a nice, um, a nice party with our co-founding team, right? When they came with well, us. did. I wasn't there. Oh, you weren't there? No. Oh, I, no. He he went to um, our home on the East Coast and did a lot of back and forth with papers and faxing and all that. Was yeah, that before yeah, no, that? Yeah. So we were expecting to finish the transaction in like mid-October 2009. And I actually flew back to the East Coast, which is where the acquiring company was based. They were based in Boston. We were, uh, I was camped out in our home in southern New Jersey, which was just a short one-hour flight to Boston. Mm-hmm. And so the thought was, you know, we would wrap up the final paperwork for a day or so, and then I would fly up to Boston, we'd sign, and we'd do everything you described, pop champagne, and, <laughs> and then go out to a nice dinner. Sleep for days. Yeah. And so as it turned out, I I was camped out there for about two weeks because it's there was always like one last paper that needed to oh, be changed. So much and, legal work. Yeah. And yeah. it just continued day in, day out. So I was camped out there alone as so yeah. as you were doing the celebration on the on the day that oh, yeah, it finally the, happened. Right, in California. I was actually yeah alone in southern New Jersey in a beach right, house right, where right. it was empty. And I oh. went for a long walk. When I knew that f- everything was fi- finally done, uh, and it was actually very kind of melodramatic or anticlimactic, I should say, um, where you know I signed the paper, sent it in the fax machine uh, from the local library, uh, <laughs> which was serving as my remote office. <laughs> and then... There was a period of time where I'd literally signed the paper, faxed it, but because we weren't in the same room, I had uh-huh. to wait for the other fax from the acquiring company to come through for confirmation. And even then, my attorney said, well, it's not really done until the transaction is registered in the state of Delaware. The Delaware it was a Delaware corporation, um, the acquiring company was. So the transaction had to be registered in the state of Delaware, and that then became the trigger for them to release the money to us. So signing the paper didn't feel like the end. It didn't feel like the end until I got uh, an email 
on my BlackBerry at the time. <laughs> from mm-hmm. Yeah, that's showing, showing mm-hmm. the, uh, the age. Um, from my attorney saying, it's registered. And here's the wire transfer number. And so at that point, it was it was like a cold November day, yeah. uh, a year after our drama uh-huh. in 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 Washington, and I had gone for a long walk on the beach, and I was just I was just praying, like I knew things were done, but there was a sense of anxiety, like if they changed their mind at the last minute, we've just <laughs> yeah. once again we'd be <laughs> we'd be um, we'd be in a different situation. Mm-hmm. And so as I was walking back after this hour walk along the beach, my my Blackberry, whatever Blackberries did, ding or whatever, yeah. buzzed and I saw the message and I just I just hit the ground. I hit the sand. Kind of the same way I, a year earlier I'd hit hit the ground when I relinqu- when I had to relinquish control of the business. Mm-hmm. It was just uh then it was in I would say um, submission submission and this time it was in just elation uh but you know like it was tearful elation it was like mm-hmm. this this baby that we had brought up and <laughs> had this turbulent mm-hmm. five-year growth period was done and what i can say from an entrepreneurial perspective was you, know, you learn a lot about entre- entrepreneurship by you know, in books, in school, in working for a big company and starting a business as, as I did five times over. But it's a little bit different, as you said. It's a little bit different when you've got a safety net providing you a salary and mm-hmm. providing funding for your business when you're creating new businesses within a corporation. In this case, it was, it was like the entire entrepreneurial journey became crystallized in a second, when I when 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 I got the message that State of Delaware recognized the acquisition, the wire transfer was made, and I actually had a number that I could look at. Wow. Yeah, me too. It was. Right away. It yeah, was, I it checked was, our bank account. It's there. It was like the fog lifted on this whole the whole mystery of on, entrepreneurship for me, and it's like okay. Now I see why all these things that we were doing were important. In some cases, we did things very intentionally with the idea that ultimately we want to create a great business that someone would want to acquire. In some cases, we just did it instinctually, or in some cases, I did it because that's the way I learned in work. That's the way I was trained in the management development program 20 years earlier. Mm-hmm. But it just, it just all crystallized in a way that I, it's hard to describe. And so. Like, was it uh, just that sense of accomplishment? It was, we did this? I think um, there was that, but I, 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 yeah, I think there was that, but I think it was even more, we, we sort of knew that we had done this, like, when once they made the offer. I think this was more just crystallizing what had transpired in terms of uh, how to create a bit, how to create a vision, how to build a business around that vision, how to plan and marshal resources for that vision, how to execute the plan uh, for that vision and then seeing it all snap in place mm. and you know, seeing the, the beginning to the end all materialize, it just mm. became, I, I don't know how else to describe it except it was like moving from old, like an old grainy television screen to 
high definition mm. o- overnight. It was mm-hmm. just that complete clarity of the whole journey all made sense. And it really um, signifies a shift in where your focus could be, which I want to get to in another conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I want to come back and ask a question about marriage again, okay. um, because I think a lot of times entrepreneurs are like, I've just got to gut this out. And, you know, my family hopefully will be there whenever that acquisition comes or when we get profitable enough that I'm not just 24-7 birthing this baby, as Mm -hmm. you said. So I'm curious, um, because I know when we met you guys several years ago, I mean, you just, you have such an easy relationship with each other. You're just really great people to be around. And it's clear that you like each other a lot. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) still (laughs) Uh and um so i'm curious um what are some things that you've done to maintain intimacy fun and friendship in your marriage for 36 years and especially when you know you were in that vice of just unending pressure I'm just going to say that one important thing I learned, so this is may not answer those questions, but it may in a roundabout way answer those questions, mm-hmm. is I think we learned a lot about each other. We learned a lot about our strengths and weaknesses and how they balance each other out. I once heard a podcast about pioneers and settlers. And as soon as I heard that, I realized, oh my goodness, Bob is a pioneer and I'm a settler. And you can't have a pioneer without a settler, and you can't have a settler without a pioneer. Interesting. And I realized that's how our relationship had always been. Hmm. We got married, we moved into our first house. I would have stayed there forever. Bob's like, no, 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 there's something bigger and better. (laughs) And he drags me to the next place. Uh It's like, oh, Uh oh, okay, all right, I can see that, I can see it. And then I come and I settle. It's like, all right, now I'm not leaving. Then he goes, oh, oh, I see something, you know, again and again and again. So we had moved quite a few times, you know, just the different things we had done. So for me, as the non-entrepreneurial person in a business, just understanding that about him was extremely helpful to know that he's the risk taker, to know that he's always on the lookout on the horizon, where's that new land? And as soon as he conquers that new land, He's done. He has to move on to something else. He knows, and he's also comfortable with me staying behind and settling uh-huh. until he gets the next area established. Yeah. So I so think you guys that's, have more of a complementarian, I would say. Yes. Marriage. Yes. Uh, you each kind of have your sphere yeah, of so, roles, but sure. together you're quite a powerful team. Yeah. I think, be- well, because we know our strengths and weaknesses. I think we've admitted our strengths and weaknesses to each other. Mm -hmm. We've admitted our family weaknesses that you bring from your parents and your grandparents and your heritage Mm -hmm. to a marriage. You know, my family tends to do this. Oh, well, my family tends to do that. So we know that about each other. And we've given each other permission to say, hey, stop acting like your mom. Hey, stop acting like your dad. You know what I mean? Touche. Exactly. So that is like, oh, yeah, you're right. I really am doing that. Yeah. That's, Did you guys ever that's a good check. Go to marriage counseling along the way? Did you have mentors? Did you read books? How did you learn those things about yourself, about each other? Um, maybe trial and error, listening to sermons, listening to other people. Just knowing 
just seeing my family's history and his family's history, I think there was, you know, and I'm just going to talk in very general terms about our parents' generation and things that happened. Well, we don't talk to them anymore because this happened. And either that just happened in our specific families or it's a generational thing that happened around a certain time. And we knew we didn't want to be like that. And we knew, you know, those are things I don't like about my parents. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be like that. And Bob, same thing. These are things I don't like about the tendencies in my Mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. Let's try to have our family not do those things. So very intentional about how you wanted your family to be. Yes. Just reacting. Yes. Making intentional choices. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yes. Anything else in terms of what, what, what do you guys do or... Did you do during those hard years, especially to keep some fun or keep the friendship and keep that intimacy, that connection Mm -hmm. as a couple and not let the company just, because it can, it can just consume your life. And it, and it sounds like it did at one point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think it did. And I think, um, you know, you hear some people say you've got to be able to compartmentalize, um, business and work and balance family work. And I understand the spirit of that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say is I'm not sure that we did that per se, but I think what we did was equally healthy. I think when you're, when you're the founder of the business, it's not a, it's, it's not a 40 hour a day. It's 24 mm-hmm. seven. It's, and I know you know this, you and Mark know this, it's it's 24 7 it's all consuming you can't fake it in that you can't say oh i'm present here if i know i've got an unresolved issue with the business it's going to be there whether we're at a candlelight dinner or not yeah Mm -hmm. um and um what I would say, one of the one of the marks of a successful entrepreneur based on all the reading that i've done is for the founder to be able to convey a compelling vision to have others follow that. And that includes first the founding team, the management team, and, and others, including investors that are, are going along for the ride. I think that same principle applies in a marriage. So when we look at, um, and I'm not talking about starting a business within a marriage, I'm talking about mm-hmm you know, life is a marriage. Mm-hmm. And us, I think one of the best exercises uh, we've done, and you may say, what have we done for fun? This may surprise you, <laughs> is uh, for for many years, and I to some degree still do, mm-hmm. between Christmas and New Year's, we usually take, um, you know, a day or so, and we just, we talk about the future. But it's not just New Year's resolutions and are we going to lose 10 pounds or do this or travel there? I mean, we talk about those things, sure. but not in the context of an activity list. We talk about them in the context of our life together, beginning with, mm-hmm. and again, this goes to our faith. We talk about this from an eternal perspective. We start mm-hmm. with eternity and then work backwards. And it's, it's about what impact are we going to have on uh, this uh, this world while we're here on our family members, our friends, our extended family, mm-hmm. the community, the spheres that we've been placed, whether it's in the workplace or in the in, in our church or 
in uh, in the universities that I teach? You know, how are we going to impact that? And then what does that look like? And so that's that's sort of the kind of the philosophical question. Ultimately, uh, the reason it takes you know a couple of days for us to have these conversations once a year is it does get down into okay, now let's talk about what we're going to do with those things in mind, those eternal things in mind. Right. What are we going to do in the in the coming months? And that may include it may include losing ten pounds, or it may include making a trip here. But it's not to make a trip to see some new site. It's to have time with maybe a family member or a long friend, or to travel with a family member or friends, so that we mm-hmm. we begin to execute these these kind of eternal objectives that that we have. And I think. More than anything else, mm-hmm. uh, that sounds like a planning exercise. On one level, it's a planning exercise, <laughs> so it's not very pl- fun, not very romantic. <laughs> but what it does is fuses our lives, fuses mm-hmm. our vision, the same way that the uh, a founding entrepreneur needs to convey the vision that he or see- she sees to those who may not have the same clarity, but have to have to sort of trust and be good followers to the entrepreneurial leader. So, mm-hmm. but this encompasses both of you. It's it's yeah, the very much vision. so. And were you very doing that during the days of building the company, or did that? I think even before then, even yeah. before then, right? And okay. we would have like we don't have any discussions on money, and we don't have any money issues because during those times of discussions, we would say, "Okay, your car is getting old. Do we need a new car this year? Don't we?" If we made the decision we didn't need a new car, there would be no person going out in the middle of May saying, uh-oh, honey, I just bought a car, yeah. Or, yeah, you know, yeah. or vice versa. I saw a new commercial. This commercial is so <laughs> yeah. good. I just had to have it. I deserve it's the car. It's a Tesla. Yeah, it was, right. we, yeah, exactly. It was right. always incumbent upon the plan. Like Once we agreed on the plan, mm-hmm. in a kind of a dispassionate yeah. uh, mode, the plan dictate, dictated what we did. Now, and we, mm-hmm. we provided enough flexibility that, if it was a nice weekend and we said, let's, let's go on a trip that we weren't planning, we gave mm-hmm. ourselves the freedom to do that. Mm-hmm. Or right. yeah. if there was a really good commercial on a car, we would <laughs> say, <laughs> let's go out to dinner yeah, and talk about it. Or something happened, right? The car broke yeah. down. We weren't planning on it. Okay, now we need yeah. to have another discussion. Yeah. So we so always silly. had discussions like that. And then I also have to say, we are very, very silly. Very silly. <laughs> So silly that people may not realize it. We're the same people. Yeah, we 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 do have a lot of uh, we we've always had a lot of fun. Yeah, in marriage. a lot yes. of fun. The friendship is very apparent. It's wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, thank and you. I, I hope your your children have been able to, and I'm I'm sure they have. You know, had wonderful role models for their own marriages. Well, thank you. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And you know, I think most people would take that money and run and. I don't know, play golf or whatever you like to do forever, but that has not been your story. And I think there's another chapter. We'll come back and visit another time because you're very invested in the next generation. Yes, both for your children, your family. And I would love to, to share that story at some point. But thank you so much. This was a great story. And I, I hope it's encouraging to a lot of couples that will be listening to it. So thank you, Bob we and Rose, too. so much. No. Oh, we thank you for the opportunity. Yes. As many people as possible. Wonderful. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this story. I found it to be quite challenging and breathtaking at times. 
If you'd like to connect more with Bob, you can find him on LinkedIn under his fancy name, Robert J. Noor III. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this interview, please share it with someone else who is on this crazy journey. For more marriage resources, go to kathyrushing.com. That's Kathy with a K, rushing.com. And remember, you're building a life together. Make it a great one. Till next time.